You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Lori Lowenstein is the author of Unmentionables and Death of a Rainmaker, the First Dust Bowl Mystery. She is currently a member of the fiction faculty of the Wilkes University's Creative Writing Program. Her new Dust Bowl Mystery is a funeral train. Thank you for joining me, Lori. Oh, I'm delighted to be here. Uh, Lori, these novels are set during the the Dust Bowl era, the Depression in the center of the country. And I think your first novel, Unmentionables, is set in about the same time period. What drew you to write novels in, in here in the 21st century and set them back at a time when uh, very few people from that time are even alive, let alone thinking about it? Yes, well, um, I'm an eternal history major, <laughs> so uh, I studied it in college and grad school, and uh, it, so it's a sort of a passion for me. Um, the two time periods that I picked, the unmentionables, um, I think it was set in 1917, which I found interesting um, because uh, women did not yet have the right to vote, but they were getting close. And also the US was getting ready to enter World War One, And I thought that was, uh, which sort of propelled the women's getting the right to vote after the war. So I found that to be an interesting period. And then the 1930s, um, certainly my parents were children at that time. And uh, I had read the book um, by Timothy Egan. It's a nonfiction uh, book called The Worst Hard Time. It's just an amazing, uh, book ab about that period, and he he went out to um, interview people in the Dust Bowl area who were still alive at that time. The book came out in 2006, and um, people who stayed there. You hear always hear about people uh, migrating. You know, from John Steinbeck's *The Grapes of Wrath*, that folks who migrated from Oklahoma, and um, there. But there were some people who stayed and tried to make it through the Dust Bowl. So that book, it just, I don't know why, it just called to me. And so that was another reason to pick the Dust Bowl era. You decided to write mysteries set in Oklahoma during the Dust Bowl. What drew you to use the mystery genre to explore that era of history? Well, I'm a mystery lover. So I'm going to, you know, <laughs> I thought I should try and write something uh, that I really enjoyed and wanted to read myself. Um, so that was one reason. The other reason back going back um, to the Dust Bowl period, there was a the biggest storm of the Dust Bowl was called Black Sunday. It was in 1935. And um, the dust, the dust storm at that time that it went all the way across the country from the, the high plains it was uh it turned the it was came through in the daytime it turned the uh, everything was pitch black when it it went through the towns and the in the countryside people couldn't see their hand in front of their face um the as they saw the dutch the dust storm approaching it was 600 feet high it looked like a, just a wall of of dust 
and it crossed the, the plains and it and it continued all the way out to New York City and all 300 miles out to into the ocean. So um, the um, so with the pitch black part called me like I, I was like, wow, wouldn't it be cool to <laughs> have a, a murder occur during this this very famous dust storm. So that was the first book, the um, death of a rainmaker that I won't that was sort of inspired me. And then I was just not ready to let go of these characters. So I wrote a second one. <laughs> you know, one of the things that struck me, even when I just saw that the, you know, the title of the series, the Dust Bowl Mysteries, and this is something that's been in my brain for a while, is that um, with all the current understanding and experience, as it were, uh, of climate change, uh, these uh, mysteries in that time are an example of telling us that climate change has been around for quite some time and it can be extremely severe. I think that uh, one of the things you do well in these novels is to write specifically about that time in the way that the people of that time experienced and thought about it, but also reading it here in the 21st century, we can't help but think, wow. It could and very is likely to get much worse than we can even imagine. What you were just describing, that dust storm, I mean, were that to happen today, it would take down air traffic, it'd take down the international, you know, the, the interstate highway system. It would bring the United States to a grinding halt. That's yes, you're right. I um, so part of the reason the Dust Bowl happened in the 30s in that area was that um, there was a, um, a desire for land and for farming by folks in the um, east that, that 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 could not purchase land. So there was a movement west, and um, it, this in the eight. 1889, there was what was called the land rush in Oklahoma, and it, part of the the uh, territory w which was um, assigned to Indians at that time, the Native Americans, um, the part of that territory was then, then opened up for settlement. So the settlers, the white settlers, rushed in and set up farms. And this is land in the prairie that is really not ideal for farming. It was very, very thickly. Uh, covered with prairie grass, which has exceptionally deep roots, and that kept the soil in place. And they started plowing up those um, that grassland. So when that happened, and then the area is prone to drought. So, but now the land could not um, sustain itself because there was no none of the prairie grass to keep the earth and the dirt in place. So that that certainly contributed. Um, but the drought that we're going to be having now um, continues on. And um, there's a massive aquifer um, that goes from, I believe, North Dakota to Texas. I'm, um, I wrote it down, the Agalala, which um, it, it's, it's been there for centuries. And we've been drawing from that um, for quite a long time. We, we, we draw out um, eight times, we draw, we're drawing out water eight times faster than it can be refilled. So that's gonna influence what happens from now on, I think. Uh, this is, uh, 
This then makes the reading experience of these books even more poignant because they both they draw from our past but also point to our future as well. <laughs> it's kind of scary to think about it. when you were writing them. Uh, were you thinking about these in in those kind of dual terms? Well, I certainly was aware as 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 I you know studied and learned more about the dust bowl and why it occurred that yes we're we're sort of marching down the same route um and we didn't learn from the past mistakes completely uh, not an unusual characteristic of any part of the human race uh, learning from our <laughs> mistakes true <laughs> now one of the things that makes these books so captivating are the characters you create because they're poignant and they grab our emotions. So talk about just, you know, the core characters, you know, Sheriff Temple Jennings and, and Ethan Jennings, they are wonderful oh. characters. So, and they exemplify the best in people, but don't seem like kind of like falsely overly heroic. They're just barely able to cope with what's going on around them. And that's what makes them so heroic and appealing. Yes, I really, um, so I'm from the Western Ohio. I'm from the Midwest. My mom was from Western Ohio. So I feel like these characters are very Midwestern, even though it's set in Oklahoma, there were a lot of Midwesterners that, that immigrated there. So I feel like there's a uh, Midwestern core there. I also wanted to write um, a mystery that had a husband and wife um, sort of solving the cases and that, that I found that after I started down that path, it became, I saw it could become difficult because in the thirties, I mean, women did um, work outside the home sometimes, and but they still did not have the range of opportunities open to them. So to have a couple, maybe both, you know, working in the sheriff's department was not realistic. So I have to try and find ways to get Etha involved. She's a, you know, she's a smart woman and she wants to, you know, she gets pulled into these things and has something to contribute. So that's, that's been a challenge writing uh, mysteries that have a couple at the, the core of the, of the book. Um, but yeah, I, I think I modeled them probably, especially Temple after my grandfather. He was a farm boy in Western Illinois. And there's just that sort of bedrock kind of honesty and humbleness that I tried to infuse the character with. Now, one thing about historical novels is that, for me at least, uh, when I read them, I, I look at them as examples of world building in, in much the same way that, you know, Tolkien had to build Middle Earth for humans residing here in the early 21st century, uh, you know, Oklahoma in the 30s is about as close as Middle Earth in terms of how much we understand it. Many people might understand Middle Earth more as far as that goes. Yes. So, <laughs> uh, and I thought one thing she did really well was that the language you use, the character names you used, and the, the cadence of the sentences was all very uh, kind of clipped and almost uh, claustrophobic without enclosing the reader in. So talk about just creating the prose feel 
uh, for the Times Nice books? Sure. So um, one of the classes I teach in the graduate program at Wilkes University is for writers is um, research for writers. So um, I teach them what I try and practice myself, which is to do a lot of research. And no matter what you're writing, if it's contemporary fiction or um, something set in the past. And so that involves encourage them to do interviews with people, even if they're not uh, people that, that might appear in the book. It's it's a way to listen, you know, the language, pick that things up. But also um, for, for my work and for if you're doing a historical novel, there's a ton more in, information at your fingertips than there was when I was in graduate school in history, when you had to go down to the university's basement in the library and look at the microfilm. And a lot of it has been digitized. It's amazing. So when I, you mentioned the names that I picked. So I have a town that, a real town that I modeled my fictional town on, and I can go to the census records uh, for 1930 in that town. And I can see all the names. I can see the occupations of the people, um, their education level, where they were born, you know, all the things that are on census uh, data. And that helps me get a feel for the place and then make it also, I want to make it authentic. But uh, I also teach the students, we talk about verisimilitude, which is what you're talking about with the world building. Like it's really important that your reader, you pull your reader into your, um, the, the place that you're writing about and make them that they feel it's real and authentic, even if it's fiction, you know, fantasy, it still needs to have a logic to uh, how it's set up and um, and use specific specificity. I find I encourage them to like if they're talking, they have a tree in a scene, you know, that cup the two cup couple is standing under a tree, not to just call it a tree, but to name the kind of tree it is that's um, appropriate for the setting. So I always have a lot of cottonwood trees. <laughs> now, you talked about the town you created, Vermilion. Um, so give us a little more detail about that, because um, the kind of town that existed then was in some ways not too different from the, the kind of small towns of today in that there's a core center where there are, re in, in Europe, but there, the big difference is, is that in the core center, there are kind of like houses that we might recognize as houses today as having, you know, amenities, electricity. Maybe some people, not everybody, would have telephones. Um, they'd have yards, fences, etc. But when you got outside, it wouldn't be like our exurbia now, where you have essentially the same kind of houses transported out further away. Out there, you know, your houses was a structure on the ground, uh, and that was about it. And so, talk about you know creating that town and uh, having the structures and the the uh, the placement of the town reflect the characters, and you know, populating each part of the town with the right kind of character. Okay, sure. So the the town itself is the county seat. So that was sort of important because that what meant the courthouse was there, the jail was there. Uh, often in these places, um, in rural 
the rural South and the rural Midwest and the West at this period, the jail, the sheriff's residence was attached to the jail in some way. And so in, I included that in the work because I thought that would be interesting to be living in a, in my, the setup for Temple and Etha is an apartment on the, on, in the courthouse and the jail is adjacent. And there's actually a what jail cell in her kitchen. And that's not, that's not unheard of. And um, so I thought I wanted it to be, have a courthouse and have a county seat at that, that. And then um, I wanted businesses that would be common there. There's a, um, a luncheonette called the Maid Right. And that um, was modeled after the town where my mom was from in Western uh, Illinois. They still have those out there. They were just little local lunch stands. Um, there's a movie theater. Movies in the 30s were a big deal. And uh, so I, I have a movie theater there the, in the first book, especially the theater owner is, who is a blind man uh, finds the body. Um, but I also was aware that, yes, it's it's the small town is set among the the agri, you know, the rest of the county is all farming. And you're going to get a variety of housing out there. They have the Saudis, which were houses built with bricks, bricks of sod, dried sod. And then there were houses. A lot of them, though, did not have electricity um, yet. Um, that was something that did not uh, come to pass till after the, the Depression. And um, so you have you have county people, and you have the little the the town people, and they work together sometimes and sometimes there's resentment uh, between the two um, because of different stat, you know, the different socioeconomic status. You know, one of the things that I really liked about the novel was what you were talking about earlier, that uh, Sheriff uh, Temple Jennings and, and Etha Jennings have to live in this courthouse and they have a jail cell in her, in her kitchen. <laughs> And I think that this kind of, you know, it really offers you, a, a, as a fiction writer, offers you a lot of opportunity to keep everybody engaged with what's going on in the plot. And I think that that was a really, you know, a smart move for a fiction writer to, to, to put your people right in the center of everything. Good. Yes. Well, I, I'm glad to hear that. And again, that was sort of a function of like, how do I keep Etha, the wife, part of things that she's not just at home cooking the meals and things how does she stay engaged in the whole mystery plot so that that enabled me to do that and and you know i think you do a good job too uh, of creating the the socioeconomic status of etha and the other women and contrasting it and also you know there's there are some uh, black people in in the, the novel kind of on the peripheries you keep this all fairly realistic and I think it suggests that one of the um, positive aspects about writing a historical mystery especially during times when the and in settings of extreme poverty today we would just look at that entire town and say you know that's like so far below the poverty line, you need, you know, a, a, a grain elevator to get down there. Um, but uh, one of the positive aspects of that is that it limits, a, it 
creates a lot of limits that, that make it kind of easier for you as a writer to work within those limits. You know, you can only do this. It's not, you don't have too much choice in what, you can, what can happen. Yes, that's true. I try and, yes, I stick to the, um, the parameters of the lives that these people had. And, and I think at that time there was less, uh, I don't, I don't think the people in any of these areas necessarily felt impoverished until the dust bowl hit. And then they really, you know, I think they were not, they were farmers and, and small town merchants making a living, feeding their families. Um, and that, and, 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 that was fine. And, but when the dust bowl came and the great depression at the same time, then the farmers started losing their farms to foreclosures. And then the local merchants have no customers and that. So in general, I would say if things had just carried on without the depression, the dust bowl, I think they would have been happy with their lives. I, um, and I, I think to the way we live today, our expectations of, um, having um, goods and services at, at a high level um, is it was not really in keeping with what was going on then and, and that that was okay you know one of the things that I think is is interesting about this novel too is the kind of types of crime that people were able to commit and the kind of things that that temple, uh, is out looking for. I mean, on one hand, you know, there's always an opportunity to get bootleggers. This is a time during the prohibition when, you know, people weren't supposed to drink while it was illegal. Seems super crazy now, but back then it was what they did. Uh, talk about it. He has, you know, a nice divided attitude about this, I think. So talk about creating that you know, the opportunity for crimes that people might not exactly be keen on solving. Sure. So Temple is a good guy. He's uh, a, an understanding, compassionate man, and it bothers him when he has to uh, maybe enforce the law that, um, that like, for example, for foreclosing on a farm. Oh, my you know? God. Those, so, those scenes in Death of a Rainmaker are, you know, they're wrenching them. Yes, and that was, I think that was hard on a lot of the lawmen. And um, so he has this capacity to sort of try and interpret the law in a fair way, what he thinks is fair. But sometimes he can't, he just, he has to enforce the law as regarding, for example, the foreclosures. Um, the, the stills and things, I, this was a, this was a example I give the students when I teach the research class, because I, you know, I knew the um, prohibition ended and I assumed it was a nationwide thing. It was a nationwide uh, uh, law, but many states chose not to um, let um, liquor be served even after prohibition ended. So in o Oklahoma, I discovered that you could get beer, but you really couldn't get um liquor or a hard drink or a cocktail or anything like that until like the 1950s. So at early draft of one of my, um, one of the stories I had a temple and his buddy sitting at the bar having whiskey or something, which, you know, you could do, but it wasn't really legal. 
So, uh, and then I know, I'm sure it happened all the time, but it was, you couldn't advertise that you were selling whiskey, for example. So I, I was really surprised at that. So I tell the students like something you assume you got to like take that next step and just double check that it, that is so, um, but yeah, I think, um, I think, you know, Temple wants to, to do right by people and is willing to stretch things a bit when he can. Now, the novel begins with uh, an incredibly well-described uh, uh, disaster, and this has to do with the railroad. And one of the things that becomes clear in this novel is how important the railroad was to the life of each individual town and also to the nation. I mean, at that time, the railroads were kind of a combination of, you know, our... Uh, interstate highway system and the internet because they brought all the information in and brought in new people in the same way that you know the internet is bringing you into my life yes that's true I, I was surprised I mean I've always been a train fan and love to ride the train but I I didn't think of all the different kinds of uh, jobs people had and how they were set up along especially out in the west when there's long stretches where of you know, there's no towns. And so you have work crews that are stationed um, along the way because the, the rails always needed tending to. They needed to replace the ties or, you know, the spikes or things like that. And um, so I found out that they, if in these situations, they lived sometimes in these camp cars, which were old um, train, you know, freight train cars that they set up with bunks in them. And sometimes they lived in town or in a boarding house in the town. Um, but yeah, it's a pretty, it was a pretty complex, um, organizational system at the time. I, it may probably still is, but I think there is more, more, more of the work is done remotely as far as, um, signaling and things like that. Um, the signalmen and the, the repairs have to be done on site, but, uh, yeah, it was a really important way to get goods around a lot of towns like the town I modeled my town on didn't even exist until the, the, the railroad came through. So a lot of these towns in this area, you know, that, that whole area were, did not exist. The trains set the scene, were set up, the rails were established, and then the town sort of formed around them. Well, you know, it just struck me too how uh, last week we averted uh, a train strike that would have shut down the nation's uh, economy at a, at a particularly un, unhelpful time. And, and this book does a great job of showing, you know, that that system wasn't didn't just drop into place, you know, in the last 20 years. It, it, it has accreted on top of what existed for the past 100 plus years. And that's something that's hard to, to get around. Yes, I was surprised as I started learning more about the train system that initially the trains um, didn't have, I forget what the name is, but they didn't have a braking system that if that, so if the train needed to brake, every all the cars in back of the, of the engine would also brake at, in, at the same time. Initially, they had to be in the cars had to be manually a brake supplied by people running across the tops of the cars and and um switching the levers so that there was not 
when the train was trying to slow down, the engine could slow, but then all these other cars behind it had to be uh, braked and slowed down individually. And I did. I didn't know that. <laughs> so um, fortunately, by the thirties, <laughs> they had that kind of braking. I didn't have to worry about that because uh, it sounded pretty complicated. Um, but I was reading a book about. Um, it's it studied it was it, reading a book about Abraham Lincoln getting to his inauguration and he took I think it was two or three weeks to get there by train purposely making stops along the way and that was the braking system at that time that they had um, but yeah trains are you know and then they, all this segregation on the Jim Crow trains was um, just an awful situation and I I try to address that somewhat in the book and and um, one of the characters writes a letter uh, to the train company about it and um, that's based on a real letter oh wow was it that, now you have family that goes back to that time in that area yeah part of my family um, well so my grandmother's family um, were from St. Joe, Missouri, and now they were there by the 1880s. Um, my grandfather, my great grandfather, was uh, killed there. He was murdered. I mean that explains my mystery uh, focus. Um, he had a some kind of a they called it a barrel. Uh, a barrel house and it was basically like a saloon and two guys came in and this is in St. Joe and they wanted, they got, the two guys got an argument. They were drinking, they got an argument. They were going to go out to, into the alley to settle it. They gave uh, my great grandfather money um, to hold for them, which is the part of the, you know, whoever won the fight. And when they came back in, the one guy accused, um, my great grandfather of stealing the money or taking a part of it and shot him in the gut and he died uh there so i so yeah i have people from there i had i have um his son then um immigrated down well traveled down to the fort worth area and was a pawn, clerk in a pawn shop and then the other side of the family they're farmers out in western illinois so yeah, there were farm folks and merchants of a sort. <laughs> and now, when you introduce a, a, a new character in this novel, Claude Steele, and he is a railroad investigator. He's a lot of fun. So, so talk about the, is he going to feature in the future books? Um, I don't think so, but uh, he was a lot of fun to write. He, um, I liked him because he was, there's people today that, uh, even called rail fans and they are just, they want to know everything about trains. They, I, I lived near railroad tracks uh, growing up and we would have people bring, uh, we live near a little overpass and people would bring their lawn chairs and put them on the overpass and watch the trains go by and they knew which trains you know, they had kept notebooks and stuff. So there, there are a lot of uh, rail fans and, and Claude, besides working for the railroad is a rail fan. And so he collects the spikes, he tries to collect. And I have a book, I'm, I'm a big uh, 
Etsy person as far as for historical pieces. I have a little notebook that um, describes all the different kinds of spikes you could find. And um, from that period, I mean, it was, it's an old, and also I was surprised that um, they had real fan magazines in the thirties. And fo so folks that maybe didn't even work for the railroad just were interested in it. They got these magazines and then you could take a trip that was planned for the real fans. And I thought this was just a purely contemporary, you know, sort of fascination with the good old days when everybody went by train, but apparently there were people like Claude who got interested and just wanted all things railroad. And now, one of the things I think that's nice about this book is, you know, they are trying to solve two different mysteries. They're, they're trying to figure out why the, the train crash happened. And, and as I say, uh, well, let me ask you about this. Did you read descriptions of train crashes to describe what you did? Because it was really, you know, you could kind of feel it in a fairly significant, not necessarily fun way. I mean, it was gnarly. Yes. Yeah, I, I did um, look into that. And actually, um, I based my crash on a real crash that occurred in 1929. Um very similar uh, in many ways. And I also read a, a bunch of books on train crashes of that period and what it was like to be on one of those in, in a train crash um, and what happened to the trains and how they could collapse and the cars could telescope into one another sometimes. And it was, it was bad. <laughs> now, um, we talked a little bit about this before, but Again, one of the things that, that is interesting here are, you know, the different kinds of crime because we have, you know, the, the train crash. There's also a murder and there's also a cigarette, uh, a cigarette scam going on. And again, we don't, you know, it's kind of hard to wrap your brain around that. But as you read it and create it, you think, wow, you know humans are just really good at thinking up like weird stuff to, <laughs> to, to scam on. Yes, that's true. And some of those I found, um, uh, I subscribe to newspapers.com, which has um, hundreds of old newspapers all scanned in um, from, I think, the 1840s to present day. So I could put in, uh, you know, the word scam, for example, and see what I got. Um, I was interested in the cigarette thing too, because that was, I, I was, a, that, that sort of, I stumbled on that because I was looking into the railroad police and that's who that Claude Steele character is. He's a detective or a policeman, depending on those mean the same thing. Um, and, you know, what kind of cases would these, these guys usually be um, following up on? And it often was stealing goods from a train or steal or people stealing stuff from the passengers on the train. So that's the, the cigarettes were being, you know, stolen from a, a, a freight train. I think that's how it started out. And so, yeah, people are, are inventive <laughs> when it comes to crime <laughs> and the, the t sheriffs in these little towns, it was, you know, to have, um, 
I mean, this is the, the trouble with like all mystery books set in small towns. It's like it becomes a point if you keep writing them like, well, how many murders are there in this place? It's like a running joke. But um, most of the time it was not that. Although there I think there was a lot of um, like what happened to my great grandfather, people getting in arguments and shooting each other or, you know, that kind of stuff. Guns are uh guns were killing people back then too yes. now uh you know one of the things that makes your novel feel so kind of full are the way you write about the different families and the way you know the and different married couples and I'm thinking of Ruthie Joe and Cy who are really wonderfully created characters and a great couple and Ruthie Joe is somewhat of you know she's has like you know she's a phobia of going outside almost yes and Cy he you know works more like a regular job so talk about creating them and in particular uh uh Ruthie Joe is She's uh, really, really what uh, these days we would call a piece of work. <laughs> yes, she was. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, she shows up in the first book, I think. I think I had her in there. Or she, if not, I refer to her. She she doesn't come out very often. She's a, re a recluse. And I think she was mentioned. Because uh, I think Cy was in the first book, too. So it's, it's known that she's a, lo a local recluse. And... She went, she came out that in the first book, I believe, to get the free uh, cup and saucer that was be, being given away at dish night at the movie theater, because that was a way to get people to come to the movies was to give them free dishes. So, but she's um, not a nice person. <laughs> and uh, I guess I was wanting to create her so that, um, that there would be multiple suspects that might want her dead. <laughs> And, um, and my mother had this little spice box that I describe in this book it, that she bought at some, you know, antique place and it had all these little drawers in it. And I thought oh, that would be interesting if Ruthie Joe used the little spice drawers as a sort of a cataloging system that she could have, you know, sort of blackmail or, or uh, people in the town if they, you know, for little misdeeds of maybe infidelity or whatever she has she uses the spice drawer but um yeah i i, I Cy is and then he's a good i think a good companion for her because he's just this nice guy and he just wants to have come home and have a nice meal and she's usually serving him like cold bologna sandwiches and stuff and uh but i i just wanted i liked her so much because she's sort of an eccentric and um, I thought that was interesting. I enjoyed being around her, and <laughs> she had a lot of secrets. Yes. Now, um, one of the things about historical mysteries is uh, that makes them fun to read, and I imagine uh, challenging to write, is the the constantly changing level of technology associated with with crime. You know, uh, Sherlock Holmes said, you know. The, he barely had fingerprints and right. these days you know like even what 
uh, 30 years ago, DNA was kind of like really exotic and, and debatable, as, as we well know. Nowadays, they can turn around a DNA identification, you know, in a couple of hours if, if, the, if need be. Right. So, but uh, they certainly didn't have it back then. So talk about researching, you know, what was available to uh, Temple Jennings both in terms of, you know, what was technologically possible, but also what was practically feasible for a guy in a town that we would, you know, call and authentically identify and correctly identify as dirt poor. Yes. By our so, levels, at least. Right. Well, yes, that it was, a, that was tough because there would be, there was, the, there were things like fingerprinting, for example, if, you know, that were available, but not in his town. And so, because the, um, Oklahoma was not really, it was not a state until 1907. So that is, you know, not that long um, before the book uh, uh, is set. So it's really, and it's very, there's a lot of remote areas. It's not heavily popu populated. So if they really wanted, if Temple needed um, fingerprint analysis, he would probably, he probably sends this stuff off to Oklahoma City. So I had to know like what, what capabilities did Oklahoma City have and how would he, would, would a sheriff like Temple have a relationship that he could send materials to them? Like um, if there was a gun involved, would, you know, they could uh, analyze the bullet casings and things like that. And he, he doesn't have that equipment. So, you know, he would have to send it off and that then time passes, you know, yeah. For him to be able to solve the case or, or maybe it's not going to be helpful anyway but yeah i had so it was it was not only look knowing what was in general what was available for crime uh fighting and deduction at that period but specifically in these places where they didn't have the capabilities so yeah oklahoma city would be the place now um one of uh, the things that you talk about, uh, and, and is still with us today under a different name. Today, we call them the, the homeless. Uh, back then, they were called the hobos. I don't don't wonder what it was about the HO sound that, that brings that out. But, yes. <laughs> so, so talk about, you know, creating them, because you describe them, you know, as you know, a, almost a, a, a subculture where you know the the guys would hang out at you know abandoned places together. Yeah. Right. So so talk about uh, researching that because I imagine that you know by virtue of the fact that they were did keep separate and were out of the mainstream that, that right. what might have been kind of hard to research. Um, yeah, although I think the Great Depression is one of the hallmarks is like this, you know, the soup kitchens is what you think of people in long lines in cities waiting for, for a meal, but also the um, riding the rails. And that would be, um, you know, it's mostly men, although there were some women and young girls, but mostly men who would, um, they were at unemployed, and they just would get hitch a ride on a freight train and just, just to get somewhere else and sometimes they'd they'd stop off and they'd stay at a place a couple of nights in these what was called hobo jungles and um they would try and get like day work 
to make some money or they would go to people's uh, back doors and ask for food. And um, it was a pretty well established network of these guys. And some of them would just travel back and forth. They, the younger guys just were wanting to get out and see the world and just driving back and forth, riding back and forth on the rails. And the older guys were trying to just get away, I think from, I mean, it was very humiliating for a lot of these folks when they had no work and they couldn't support their families. They couldn't, um, they couldn't do what, what they had normally done and what society was telling them that, that uh, particularly men at this time were supposed to be doing. And so they just wanted to take off. And then, so, um, so, so that was a quite a, an extensive, so there's a lot of books about these guys. And there's, um, there's a couple of um, documentaries too, and interviewing people who did it, who are still living as young people. Uh, but, um, and that was one reason the, the Civilian Conservation Corps, um, which was um, established by Franklin Roosevelt, uh, it was trying to capture some of these younger guys who were doing this sort of transient life and trying to give them work to do um, where it was needed. You know, um, the, the CCC uh, and, and the people who worked in it play an important part in this book, just in terms of creating the reality that everybody lived in. So um, talk about, you know, the wider exceptions to, you know, the, the way the wider world kind of forces itself into this book. Um, well, as someone who's interested in history, I feel an obligation to, uh, <laughs> bring some of these things to the fourth. Like you can't write about the depression without talking. I think about the CCC and it's such, uh, a lot of people, when I talk, have read the book, they say, we should still have the CCC. And, um, it, it's been tried other places and some places it's worked out, but, um, in this case it was, um, you know, the, at the, in the thirties, when it was set up by Roosevelt, it was, um, they made sure that there was at least one CCC core in every state, um, so that every state could say, could not, they, there could not be complaints that, um, some state was left out. So there were CCC projects in every state, often multiple projects, and they had them doing things like, um, out, particularly in the West about like soil conservation. They were planting trees when after all the prairie grass had been ripped up and digging, um, you know, irrigation ditches and repairing dams. And a lot of in the Eastern states, they were um, constructing, there would be state parks and they would make these wonderful stone picnic pavilions, which are still standing. Um, so there's a lot of CCC projects that are still in existence, but I felt I, I wanted to bring in, um, again, you have outsiders coming in to the town in some way so that they sort of mix things up a little bit. Uh, the Rainmaker is an outsider who's in, who gets killed in the first book where the CCC guys are sort of out at the edge of town and they show up in town to, to, to drink at night and hang out some of them and then there's you have other outsiders who are the transient hobos uh, because 
I mean, I've lived in little towns most of my life. And if you don't have people for a mystery story, if you don't have people coming in and out, uh, then everyone is just, just killing each other. <laughs> I, the Cabot Cove effect. <laughs> right. <laughs> so uh, I think, you know, outsiders are good. <laughs> you want some of that. <laughs> you know, and it's kind of interesting, too, that for all the kind of uh, the grit and the, you know, uh, a town where everybody has to deal with dirt and farming and, you know, kind of cruddy uh, housing by our standards again, mm -hmm. that the the movies were obviously really important. And I the, the guy who runs the movie palace, the blind guy runs the movie palace, what a great concept. Uh, and, and he has, you have a lot of fun with him and the dog. Yes. So, so talk about, you know, the import of the movies and how they would affect the way people who would never, ever see anything even remotely as clean as what the movies would show you on the screen for an hour and a half, you know, how that affected their lives and how that affects your, you as a writer writing about them. Sure. Um, so, yeah, I think it's well established that folks in this period really depended on the movies to lift their spirits and you think of like shirley temple and the um all the sort of feel-good movies of that period um that was was vital to people's mental health in some ways um and it took them away from their daily the daily grind i mean but i don't know if you could argue that it would be like all of us watching netflix during covid but it was sort of same escapism kind of thing. Um, and Holly, you know, Hollywood was glad to, to turn that stuff out. Um, and in the, um, I mean, there's a lot of movies that uh, of the period that I liked. Like, I don't know if um, you're familiar with Pennies from Heaven. Oh, yeah. But was Steve Martin and Bernadette Peters. And it was, I think it's based on a actually a British film, but he, they remade it. And it's the whole idea is that Steve Martin is this sort of um, con guy who's not very nice, but he, he sort of feeds into this young woman's um, fantasy about going to the movies and, and being in the movies. And so they break out in, you know, they have these fantasy scenes where they're the life, you know, they're, <clears throat> They're dancing and singing in like Busby Berkeley kind of setups. But the real life is that they live in these, you know, crummy, you know, tenements. And so I think I think that's a common thread when you look at the, what's going on during the depression that people wanted to escape. And um, I like the idea of a blind theater owner. I don't know why, how I, that, where that came from, but um, I just, uh, I, I felt like he, he could, I wanted to show him functioning, you know, like a, just a regular person. And, um, and I had fun with the movie. I had more in that movie scene in the, in this funeral train, but I, I needed to cut some stuff. So <laughs> that was another, another, the, the movie theater owner and the dog got trimmed up. <laughs> Well, you know, um, one of the things I like about this book is the economy uh, of 
the, the storytelling and the prose. And I think you do a great job of like giving us information about the characters and, and putting us in their shoes, but also moving the plot along uh, at, a, at a pretty pithy pace. So uh, talk about, you know, uh, kind of uh, balancing yourself between the needs of historical accuracy, wanting to create something that has the veracity and the pool of history, but also wanting something that has that will keep readers here in the twenty first century, you know, keep their right. attention fixed, you know, keep them away from Game of Thrones. Right. Well, I I'm not that good at that. I had a help from my editor with that because I tend to. I get interested in the characters and I sort of digress. And um, the um, Johnny Temple, who is the um, publisher of Akashic Books, um, and I, my book came out under the imprint of Kaylee Jones books, but Johnny Temple edited this one as well as Kaylee Jones. But t Johnny wanted it trimmed. He wanted it tight to the mist. You know, he didn't want stuff happening on the page. It wasn't really direct related some way. So I did have to cut, but that's okay. Uh, I think that's, he's right. And um, I had another incident with the unmentionables. I, the main character, one of them is a newspaper editor and writer. And so one of the, the pieces of equipment at that time was the linotype, which is that how, is that how, that's how they printed the paper. And it was this very comp to me, complicated um, machine that it, it would actually had molten lead at the top of it. And when the guy at the bottom, the composer would push a key, molten lead of that for that letter would would be poured into the letter, and then the stringing together the words, and then they would finally all drop down in this machinery and make it so you could have the setting type. It was setting type, but not manually. It was with molten lead. Yeah. So wait, that's. <laughs> That is Game of Thrones kind of style stuff. Yes. So I got very excited about the line. I didn't had never heard of it. I got very excited. I was looking all these YouTubes up. It's a very big, noisy machine. You can you can find it on YouTube. And I so I wanted to have a lot about the linotype in that book, and it ended up being like a paragraph because it really wasn't needed. But so I'm I have a you know issues with that, but. Um, as I tell my students in the research class, you know, watch out for information dumps because mm. you, you spend, I mean, you could spend days, you know, researching linotypes and then <laughs> you feel like you have to justify that all that time spent by, you know, putting it all in the story and it's really doesn't belong there. So uh, another common point with science fiction, you've got to keep the well, Bob paragraphs. Yes. Yes. Or, <laughs> uh, uh, well, Lori, are are you uh, working on a third book? Yes, I am. I'm started plotting it out, and um, a lot of these little towns had rodeos come. Um, so we have the outsiders <laughs> yet again arriving in the form of uh, rodeo riders. So I'm just starting. That sounds great, Lori Lewinstein's new book is a funeral train it's a dust bowl mystery thank you for joining me Lori. oh my pleasure thank you
You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.